I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Just roll with it. Boom. He's back. Yeah, buddy. So typically I tell a little story about how I know my guests, why we're friends, how we met, some thing. And this time I don't have that story because this is my first. You're seeing raw, <laughs> authentic, uncensored, <laughs> our introduction to each other. My name's Kenny Mays. Yes. What's your name? I am Roy Wood Jr. That's Roy Wood Jr. You yes. know him if you've been to comedy clubs, if you've watched Comedy Central, if you've done anything, if you've been alive for how old are you? 43. Started if you've been alive for 43 years, you know this man. You've seen his work. <laughs> There's real flowers behind you? All of those are real flowers. They're going to be props for something else I'm using at some point, but I figured, you know what, while I got them and they're still alive, why not take advantage of it? Of course. And what is that some type of award over your left shoulder? There's a yes. That award is the Alabama Broadcasters Association Award for Best Large Market Morning Show 2010 and 2011 for the Roy Wood Jr. Show on 95.7 J. That's what I'm talking and, about. Yeah. Award-winning morning radio stuff. Award-winning actor, 12 years ago. producer, writer, Roy Wood Jr. has joined <laughs> the podcast. Let's just get to know each other. What's your favorite color? Deep violets and uh, forest greens. I like darker. I like the darker spectrum of vibrant colors. Well, I guess purple's not vibrant, but you get what I'm saying. You ever heard a song called Black Orchid? No. How black um, is that black? It's, it's on The Secret Life of Plants by Stevie Wonder. It was like this no. esoteric album that was the accompaniment to a film by the same name. I just wanted to check that out. If you, no, you I don't know that purples one. And yeah, man. But yeah, purple and green. That's, that's my, that's my world, man. Shout out. I was going to do a series of questions. like we're on a first date and I'm just bailing on that. That was a stupid premise. Let's just go for real questions. What? Tell me about your father. Brag up your father. Ooh. Tell people. There's a lot. Maybe Dude. we can do the whole show on him because there's a lot there. My dad, man, so my dad was, I, I don't know, it's civil rights journalist a word, or do you just say journalist? Pretty much. I know what you're saying. If it was Black Struggle, my dad covered it, you know, internationally and domestically. You know, he was over in South Africa doing the riot. He was in Zimbabwe uh, during their civil war, you know, the whole Rhodesian thing that was going on. He deliberately embedded himself with Black soldiers in vietnam like what man oh they're treating black people bad where are they getting treated bad at war cool i'll go send me 
uh, he did the same thing, you know, back in America during the civil rights movement. You know, my father was always, was always a man, journalistically speaking, who was trying to attack and shine a light on a lot of the BS that was going on in the country. And he pretty much did that until his death in 95. Like he, he did news commentary. He did all types of stuff. Um, you minimized it. There's more to that, but all that other people now that they've been introduced to your father, you say passed in 95, right? Correct. Correct. And so, you know, it was, it was definitely, he was definitely the type of man who cared about people. And it's weird because in a way it was Stuart Scott that got me into wanting to do journalism and wanting to be funny while talking about sports. And then it just kind of dovetailed right into what my dad was doing. Only I'm, I'm just a more funnier version of my dad. I just try to find some <laughs> social issue and crack a joke around it because, you know, I choose to not be angry about the, the world because that's not a safe place to exist either. Well, hopeful is a better place, but it's okay to be angry about injustice. About, I mean, we're reliving all the stuff that we read about. I'm older than you, but I know all the, the time I'd lived them more than you, right? I was born earlier. Mm. It's like, we saw it and I was just some little kid in Seattle, Washington, watching these things happen. And I think because we were like a really news driven family, we had to shut up at six o'clock. We were watching either Huntley Brinkley or Walter Cronkite. And like, I was invested yeah. in politics at age seven. So my pops watched, my pops watched 60 minutes every Sunday night between the late game and Sunday night football when it used to come on TNT mm -hmm. back in those days. And we were very much a newspaper family as well. My father read the paper every morning. So Sunday mornings, we would read the paper as a group and would just literally just pass the sections of the paper around the table in a, the same way, like family style food, but information. Knowledge. Yeah. You know, I also have two brothers that were, you know, I had a brother that was uh, the evening anchor on the NBC affiliate in Birmingham for a while. And, you know, I had another brother that was an assignment desk editor, you know, he bounced all over the country. So, you know, journalism, you know, I'm not going to go the old, it's in the genes, you know, it's not the Archie Manning level of journalism, but in the bigger scheme of things, it definitely was, it definitely was a normal, it was not uncommon to be constantly taking in information in that house. I saw a bunch happen in my lifetime, some of it. Like, you know, we could go hours on the subject and now 2022, we didn't get very far. No. And what little progress we did make as a country is we, it seems like we're starting to backtrack a little bit, not just on, you know, black issues, but I think women's issues and voting issues. I think there's a lot of things that show that there's still a lot of fight that we need to keep in us to try and keep this country on track. Uh, the, the, well, you know what? I Let me ask you a question about America just as a whole. Is it fair to compare America to other countries? Like when we go, well, this country's got it together. Yeah, but the country's also been around since like the 1400s. That country has some degree of togetherness. It wasn't a big, a big ass. Like America is a big ass timeshare. Like imagine a timeshare if everybody showed up at the same time to stay in the property. <laughs> and, yeah. and so there's a little bit of disagreement. So you, we can't compare what we're trying to do to the folks across the hall who are owners that have been owners, you know, this entire time. So, you know, I just think we live in a country where we're trying to please everybody all at the same time. And, you know, squeaky wheels get the grease. Well, additionally, if you look back at the 
you know, they always say the framers, the framers never envisioned, but they wrote some stuff that sounded pretty damn good, but it was born in a country that already was violating the words with which we were supposed to live up to, right? Like right. we had slavery, we had slave owners, but they're writing about freedom. They were writing about all men are created equal, right? We, that's quite a deficit. If you're going to try to be this, this perfect society of equality, we, there's a long way to go from the start. Yeah. It's, it's freedom asterisk dot, dot, dot. Some restrictions apply, you know, you know, call your, call your doctor for more details and more information. If you think freedom is right for you, call your local congressman and find out if you can get some freedom. So I, yeah, I think that's where it is. Like, yeah. It's, it's built on a bit of a false narrative and that's the thing that we're trying to like unpack. And I don't want to say un undo. I don't like the word undo because there's a lot of good that sure. comes from America that you can't get anywhere else. And I think that yeah. that's the stuff that we have to, to fight to keep and sift through because you know a lot of these countries that was founded back in the 1400s or whatever the hell not necessarily always the best laws and best ideologies as well you know when we talk about what's happening right now with britney griner overseas in russia you know that is the byproduct of a very corrupt government a very corrupt system with draconian drug laws for no reason other than to keep their foot on the little people. And I don't think that law was written specifically to stop someone like Brittany Griner, but it's the perfect dragnet because you're going to be able to catch people like that, you know, sure. as well. Well, you led to the subject. Why is anybody in America in prison for any amount of marijuana, unless they did something violent in the, in the pursuit of making money off marijuana? I don't understand why. I don't know. It's insane. I don't know. I, I literally do not know. And I think a lot of it just boils down to money. You know, I think that when you look at, you know, it'll, it'll take some time to look at it and really break it down, bro. But I believe that there's going to be a correlation that as states become more lenient on marijuana, they're going to become more strict in their sentencing for all of the forms of narcotics that are still illegal because at the end of the day, and this is where America shoots itself in the foot. When we talk about freedom and justice, America is a corporation. America is a company and a company cares about the customers. And so prison is a business. And if I build a, if I'm a private prison owner and I build a prison in your state, you, the lawmaker have promised me laws that will be on the books that will keep my prisons full. So I built a prison on your good word. And now you're telling me that you're going to be lenient on people. You're going to give probation. You're going to give them a marijuana license. Oh, well then baby, you got to give me double the cocaine convictions. Then you got to give me something, you know, point. I could uh, be wrong. This is all speculation. I have no punchlines for this. This is just <laughs> my brain goes on a regular basis. Like I really do think that when we talk about the other shoe dropping, you know, if you will, on the legalization of marijuana, I think that if we're not careful, we're going to see more ridiculous sentencing in other quadrants of, mm. of the justice system. I think this is getting too dark for me. I want more jokes. Um, you talked well, about- You should have asked the first eight <laughs> questions. You had them, you balled them up. I walked away from that project. Dude, when- <laughs> When you were talking earlier about your dad did it one way, well, I get deeper into that too, because it reminded me of a scene from Apocalypse Now. Do you remember when 
when Mark Sheen's walking, he's trying to find the commanding officer and the brothers are shooting across the river. Yeah. And, and, and he says, who's your CEO? Is it ain't you? Remember like that, <laughs> yeah. that reminds me of a place he might've been. He might've been up the, up the river. My father saw some stuff and, you know, and he was out there unarmed and helping drag, you know, drag wounded soldiers, you know, like he was for all intents and purposes, he was in combat. He came back with PTSD the same way everyone else did. And, you know, you couple that to coming back to a country that is also, especially at that time, you know, public beatings and protests and everything, we see the footage. There's a PTSD that comes with that as well, because you can't be there as a black person covering something that is about black people and be objective. You were still affected by that. And yep. so, you know, I honestly believe that, you know, a lot of that fueled a lot of his anger towards the country, you know, and, you know, my, my fa- I would say the biggest difference between my father and myself is that, you know, he definitely came up in a, here's what they're trying to do to us. So watch out perspective. And my perspective is. Here's what's being done, but here's how we can fix it. I think there's a way out of it. I think if we keep doing this, we can find a way through. Yeah, I definitely have a little more optimism than my dad is what I'm saying. Well, you reference his saying, watch out, keep alert. That was the origin of the term woke, am I correct? And then other people misappropriated it. Now it just means I'm against that. Yeah, woke has been very homogenized into this sort of, oh, you just don't like that. And you're just being contrarian for no reason. So you're written off as being woke. And I do think that there are some degrees of people wanting, and I would need examples to really bolster the point, but I do think that certain things are generalized and thrown into the same buckets as things that I think are far more systemic and more pressing, you know? You know, because if you go, hey, we need to have a dialogue about police shootings and body cams. Oh, this woke culture is not going to da-da-da. It's like, what's woke about that? Hey, can we have some transparency about why the cops didn't go into the elementary school and say, oh, you woke people, the woke mob, here you come. It's like, what? We just, just want some information sometimes. It's not always about trying to nitpick someone's points of view and chastise them or punish them or get them fired for it. And I think everything is being shoved under this one umbrella. These are nuanced issues we're talking about, but we are so simplistic now as a society that we try to boil everything down to a sentence or a catchphrase or one catch-all theme. Like to me, another, another one is gun control and gun laws. Every time there's a shooting, the conversation solely revolves around, at least from what I hear from the media and through the mainstream, it's gun law, gun law, gun law, gun law, gun law, gun law. Every shooting that happens isn't because, and I'm not talking even mass shootings. I'm just talking shoot gun violence in general. It's not all from stolen guns. Some of it is mental health. Some of it is the fact that there's no jobs and no opportunity. So people feel hopeless. So they go get a gun. And then they go do dirt. So maybe it's also about education. There's statistics that show that literacy reduces violence in communities. So 
when you go, how do we solve gun violence? And people just go, gun law, gun law, gun law, gun law, gun law, gun law. Then, of course, everyone's going to go, you can't take my A. This is my gun. Yeah, I don't know why I use that voice. I know black <laughs> AR-15. I do. <laughs> but, but everybody goes into, you'll pry my gun from your dick. Okay, what about a book? Would you like to watch more Sesame Street? Can we show your child? reading rainbow is that okay can we do that because that's also a form of gun control but it's never framed as such because well, it doesn't same thing same thing when when the chant about defund the police came out it, they, there could have been a better name for that uh, we want to put money into other things than just policing and help educate just like what you just said that doesn't fit on a shirt Kenny made it's too much too much punctuation <laughs> Reallocate the police. Like, like no, oh. reallocate me. Yeah, like, too no, big a word. Pass. Pass. We're stupid. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Are you on a comedy tour right now? Let me tell you about Confess Fletch with John Hamm, September 16th. Uh, I, I am in the new uh, Fletch movie with John Hamm, but as far as stand-up goes right now, no, yeah. not this year. Um, I did a couple of COVID makeup dates earlier this year, and I have like a weird like comedy music therapy show that I've been doing in New York from time to time. But the idea of actually going out on the road and performing an hour of stand-up, I'm tired, bro. I did three hour specials in five years, which means that the off years were spent preparing the next special. Yeah. So you tore it. So it's, just, I needed a break from the road and I wanted to start exploring what I wanted to talk about next on stage. And I think it's going to be some hybrid about my father and fatherhood. And as it relates to my relationship with my son, and that's just going to take time to explore creatively in mine. So I'm not really in a, if I'm being honest, I'm not really in a rush to get back on stage right now. So, I, you know, I've been blessed enough to have the opportunity to sell a couple scripts. So I'm working on those projects and, you know, my own podcast, Roy's Job Fair. So I, like I do that, like I just, if I wasn't doing stand up, what are the other things that I would be dabbling in right now just for a little bit? So that's what this year has been about. You sound busy. Yeah. You listed like good. 17 things you're doing at once. Well, there's no time to work on comedy and think about jokes. Yeah. So get those things off the plate. You know, the question was, am I doing stand up? It wasn't, was, am I working or not? I'm deaf. There's definitely work because there's a child and bills must be paid. Oh, yeah. So there's definitely that, but it's just been fun 
to sit back and creatively explore something different. You know, we do enough, like my stand-up up until now, it's just been me yelling about the world and how to fix it. And I do that as well at the Daily Show on a daily yeah. basis. So if you're not careful, see, that'll burn you, man. My daughter went to, and I want to get back to your child. Uh, my daughter went over to London for a semester abroad, Boston U, and mm -hmm. one of her best, but coolest class I've ever heard of. I had one in, in college at UNLV called Political Films, and you'd watch a movie each week, like, you know, Birth of a Nation or whatever, and you'd write your essay about it, and next week and do another one. She got to go to plays in London and write reviews. That was her, one of her classes. Wow. And she took us to one, and I'm going to mess up the title. You might know the title. I'm not sure. It's something like, for the brothers who considered suicide when the hue got too heavy. Oh, I might not have it perfect, but that's essentially, and okay. it was amazing. And I could see with your background, your intelligence, your comic gift, like, like combo, your father, all of it doing something like you were kind of hinting at something that's funny, but heavy, that means something that's philosophical. Like you're on Broadway. That's what I want. That's what I want. That's the end game for me right now. And then maybe on the other side of that, we'll get back to the yuck yucks. But I really, I really enjoyed watching Dick Gregory, you know, sure. coming up. I got to open for him two times and oh, wow. his style and his approach to issues. I've always respected because he didn't run. He didn't hide from that. You know, I'm not trying to be Dick Gregory. I can't be. I think the closest we have in this generation is Ali Sadiq. But, you know, I really do feel like this idea that there's more to inform people on if by talking about yourself, I think mm -hmm. that's just as important. I do think that stand-up comedy is a form of journalism. You know, you're either reporting on the world around you or who you are and what you feel and why you feel, and maybe why you feel that way. Yeah. So, and punctuated with a joke to correct, be the entree into people getting the message. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the greats of the greats, you know, the ones that truly ascend, I think are able to blend the two, you know, the Chris rocks and the Carlins of the world, you know, to me, you know, the, the priors mm -hmm. of the world where they're able to take what they've learned in the world and then package it to show you how it affected them or, you know, how the world changed them as a person. Yeah. And I think that's the, that's the thing that I really want to get into, man. So that's what I'm trying for. Did you see, uh, the Chris Rock play he was in this, gosh, is it 10 years ago? A long time ago. It was called the motherfucker with a hat. No, I didn't. I didn't know. Oh, it was good yet at the time. It was so good. And I remember him saying until, and he was really good. He said to the effect, all the other stuff, it had sucked. All these, these broke comedy things, you know, that made money and, you know, stand up obviously was a stand up. He's talking about his acting and he, he learned so much. Do you feel like you keep improving and like, dang, that's the thing I did five years ago. It was funny then, but I could have done it twice as good now. Cause now I know the shortcuts and I know, the, you know, the dead air. I know the reaction stuff. There's 10 minutes of jokes from my first special father figure that I wish I could replace. <laughs> I wish I could take it out. And then if you watch the second special, No One Loves You, you'll see the 10 minutes from that special that should have gone into the first yeah. special. And it would have been perfect. It would have been perfect. 
And I would have hung my hat on that. I would have retired on that first special <laughs> if I could you do that right. 10 minute, if I yeah. could do that 10 minute swap. Well, but, you know, you just run out of time and production schedule and, you know, the business of comedy does not benefit the art form of comedy mm -hmm. in a lot of capacities. You know, you definitely do things sometimes because, oh, this really is the jokes I want to say, and this is perfect. And then there's other times where you go, ah, I could wait three months. Oh, I could just put it out now and grab the check. And, you know, it's fine. I have other mm -hmm. jokes to put in the next special. Um, I don't think any performer worth his weight is content with anything that they've done. It was the best, it was the best you had at the time. Yeah. But you want to keep going. So, you know, no, I want, and, and I don't say this, you know, with a sense of arrogance, but I definitely would love for people, if I do it the right way, then people will look at my first three comedy specials as a different era. As a yeah, different like era. Yeah, like a graduation, a graduation. Okay. I mean, it's so true. I say this all the time. I always think of it with, with sports, like football, like things you felt you could have done better, the old, if you knew then what you know now stuff, right? Correct. And, but you... You can't know it because you're not there but yet. Now, but now I know what all my strengths are and I know what the audience responds to. So now I know how to yo-yo your emotions. The other thing I've spent more time this year doing is just watching shows. Like I never stopped to just go and be a consumer of stand-up mm -hmm. comedy, to go and watch a play, to go and watch. The, like I just bought tickets to see Layla Hathaway in New York. I don't go to live music like that. I was in radio for 15 years. I saw enough music. I didn't want, you know, it was company mandated because we were there and hosting the event, the radio station was. Yeah. But now I want to buy a ticket. I want to feel this experience from the POV of the consumer. Not only because I'm a fan of live performance, but also this could bring something else out of me. You know, this is, it's very much this thing where I feel like it's Rocky four where you got to go. No, it's Rocky three where you got to go train with Apollo Creed in California and learn how to fight a different style. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, maybe it's a little training in Russia and Rocky four, but it really is this idea of if I'm going to be something different, then I have to break down the way that I've built myself up and build myself up differently. So the first thing we need to do is see what everybody else is doing, make observations and then go from there. You, your first stand up act, am I right? That you were very young, 19, 20, somewhere there. 19 is when I started. Yeah. That took some 19 nerve. in Tallahassee. Not, not really. I was on probation for stealing credit cards. So I thought I was going okay. to prison, bro. I, I didn't care. Like. Once you're sure you're going to jail, anything that happens between then and jail is very easy to do. <laughs> like, it's not, it's not like, oh, I don't, what if they hate me? Who cares? You're going to jail. It doesn't matter. Go to the open mic. So I did. And I got probation and I've been doing stand up comedy ever since. You know, like that's, that's really my origin story to a degree. And it wasn't, it took, being on the edge of losing everything for me to find myself. But, you know, once I did, you know, I never looked back, you know, and I feel like, you know, to a degree, I think that's a lot of our stories. You know, a lot of us feel like we can't do something or shouldn't be doing something or, you know, I'm not the right person for, yes, you are. You're exactly who, who you're supposed to be. 
to deliver this thing to the public. Um, so, you know, it wasn't scary. What was more scary was not having anything relatable to talk to people about on stage. 19 performing for 50 year olds. And my best joke right. at the time was about book buyback. <laughs> at that joke, and I had a joke about roommates eating your food. Oh, yes, I am sure a 45-year-old married man, that's what he wants to hear on a Friday night in a comedy club. It's a 19-year-old with his whole future in front of him. No kids, no wife, no stressors. <laughs> Talking about <laughs> book buyback. <laughs> well, I had a joke, I had a joke, bro. <laughs> Don't you hate when your roommate eats some of your food and not all of your food? If you're going to eat my food, just eat all of my food. I had a seven up. My roommate drank six of them. So I'm sitting there sipping a one up. That was my like closer. That was my closer in 1998. Don't lie. It's terrible. Dave Chappelle and Ari Spears were ripping the roof off of buildings at 15. And I was 19 behind the curve. All, all the greats have gone to credit card fraud before, like Carvey, Carson, letter. No. Of course, that's the, the art. Tell me about the credit card fraud. How did that happen? It's simple. You find a credit card on the ground and you take it to a store and you buy jeans with it. And then you sell those jeans on campus at discount prices. Come to Roy's Alabama thrift store for the best price. And, uh, one of the people involved got arrested. They, uh, passed my name to the authorities as they should uh -huh. have to keep themselves out of trouble. And, um, uh, got a knock at the door from the old Tallahassee police department. I go, yes, may I help you? which was a buzzkill because I thought it was the pizza I ordered. And let me tell you something, Kenny May, nothing is more deadening than opening the door and thinking it's your pizza and it is the police. Damn. And then as you're being taken to the squad car, your pizza arrives. And the only thing I could muster to say to him, you're late. <laughs> they put me in the squad car. That's a good joke. Yeah. I shouldn't have used that. Instead of fucking <laughs> You've been getting arrested, then your food come. Now I'm in jail hungry. <laughs> yeah, that was just, that, that was more just, you know, just bad behavior, 17, 18, crime of opportunity mm. type stuff. Like I wasn't trying to fund terrorism with credit card fraud. I just wanted no. nice jeans so that I could impress women. And you're... And, and I'm thankful enough to have had a benevolent judge and a benevolent, you know, you know, I'm one of the few that, that the legal system didn't swallow up that could have. So, you know, I've tried my best on the backside of that to do good things. And, you know, on top of that, I had a dope ass probation officer who let me travel and do stand up too. That's why my, the first sitcom I sold at Comedy Central was about me playing a probation officer trying to make a difference. Dang. That's rooted. That's me. It's my life. Basically my life. So the, I think that there's ways to try and bring stories to light that say something without it being too heavy handed either, you know, kind of, kind of in the way that Abbott elementary at its core is about the highs and lows of being an educator in this country and, you know, re res respecting the small victories that you get.
So, you know, I sold a show with Dennis Leary to Fox that's about the na about a National Guard unit mm -hmm. that's out there solving problems. And to me, you know, this was, when you look at the National Guard, so my radio station in Birmingham, we did a lot of community stuff. We did a lot of outreach, you know, for people. Um, you know, we played all the hits, you know, 95.7 Jams, number one for hip hop and R&B. But also we did a lot of good stuff in the community for people mm -hmm. who deserved it or needed it. And, you know, there would often be times where, you know, we would show up to, you know, for tornado relief or, you know, some storm came through or there was a flood or whatever. And it would, and the National Guard would be there. And I just, I always noticed that, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to crack a lid on environmental racism or anything right now, but traditionally, and I'm just speaking about Alabama and it's not even a race thing. It's more of a, it's a, it's a class thing. What I'm talking about floodplains in the state of Alabama are traditionally lower valued land. So traditionally it's not the good side of town. Most floodplains mm -hmm. in most cities are not the good side of town. The area that's most likely to flood is not a nice area. So when floods happen, who are the ones getting helped? It's, it's the poor people, it's lower middle class, it's lower class. And so that's who the national guard is there to help. And if you look at the national guard by and large as an operation, they are charged with being a bandaid on government dysfunction. That's their job is to just come and oh, your employment wages are so low that all of the prison guards quit. Okay, National Guard, come in and be prison guards. They're almost temp service workers to a degree, especially during COVID. So they're driving school buses in Boston right now. Yeah, well, you I have don't a respect for this, this position, obviously. Because it is a window into what a lot of everyday people struggle with. Lack of school bus drivers is not a rich person's problem. Right. It's just not. So the National Guard is here to fix problems that affect, you know, the every man. And so to me, that's a, that's a good way to be able to use a television show to just show something, even if we don't have the solutions, I just think there's a way to look at that. And, you know, and it's, it's a project that I'm really, I'm like, for real, I'm legit excited about it because when you see the military on television, it's kick a ass and hoorah, or they're all a bunch of dummies all on base, making the sergeant mad, which is fine. There's a place for both of those shows, but I want to always, as best I can try to show something different that we haven't seen before to be able to have a new way to explore, you know, a lot of issues and mm -hmm. topics that people don't normally think about or want to talk about. No, it's like we were talking earlier. That's the blend of something kind of philosophical, a certain reverence, and also some jokes. Like you can do all those yeah. things at once. It's funny that people sometimes like on Twitter, I'll notice, I'll say whatever, you know, I get much more political now than I could before when I was to the SPN and under different guidelines. And how can you do this? This is so wrong. You didn't give me the Joe Montana joke or, you know, it's like, why can't you fucking do two things at once? It's okay. You can be funny. You can take a nice picture of a deer in the backyard and you can also <laughs> say, fuck Trump. you like, you can do those things. I don't say it that way. I said, hopefully we're in a Yeah. Yeah. But they want you to be what they want you to be. You right. Know? 
you know, it's members of the media. I feel like we're often actors cast in the roles of other people's happiness. And then they get mad when you don't hit your lines. Well, I didn't get your script. I didn't know that my line yeah. today was to be nice to the thing that you hate. And, you know, but I also think that a lot of it, the internet has never really bothered me, man. Like for everything that we do on the daily show and, you know, there's some hate mail. I can't even say hate mail because nobody's right. Not even racist or writing letters like that to us. Like it's a DM or, yeah. you know, I was in the airport one time. I had my airdrop set for everyone, amateur mistake. And a stranger tried to airdrop me a Trump 2024 and a middle finger. And you know, like, it's like, it's, it's stuff like that. I've gotten a death threat or two, but I just feel like all of this stuff, man, it's just rooted in your own frustrations and anger about something else going on in your life. And this conversation about this thing is how you are verbalizing or putting out what that your frustrations are just coming out the wrong way. Like, I don't get mad about that. I just had a post the other day. So the great Mets announcer, uh, Gary Cohen, and I think he's a great announcer and it's very funny. Uh, Cubs Mets, it was like the last game of the series. It was the last game for the all-star break. And Cohen was just being just snarky about the Cubs to a degree that I just thought was funny. I just thought it was funny. They put a graphic on the screen and it's like, here's all the good things the Cubs have done. It's three World Series, three World Series, uh, 11 division titles, and the pennant. This, this, and it's nothing but good news on the screen. Just And the graphic is there. And you would assume the broadcaster would just read the graphic. But then Cohen goes, yep, only took him 108 years between <laughs> championships. And I'm like, why would you say that? And it was funny. It was funny. Then the Cubs won the game and his last words before the end of the broadcast and the Mets go into the all-star break 58 and whatever, whatever. And the Cubs get to hear go Cubs go for the first time in a week. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. It's snarky. It's funny, but I don't know if I worded it wrong when I pointed it out on Twitter, but then you get people, Hey, he's a legend. And don't you disrespect him. Did I disrespect him? <laughs> So, you know, there's, there's just things that I think I don't take internet hatred personally. Threats I take personally, but if it's just you sure. suck and you don't agree with my opinion, I don't care about that. That's fine. Speak your piece. I don't even block people. No, I don't either. I mute a few people, but blocking gives them more power. They can say, I got blocked by so-and-so, you know. I mute people who post their stupid horoscope every morning. Like, I don't want to know that you're going to have a good day. So I, I'll mute you, you know, I don't like that. But, you know, last comic standing, they made us live tweet in 2010. And it was like the early days of live tweeting, this concept of yeah. a TV personality interacting in real time with the internet. And you would see people saying that you follow the hashtag and you would see people saying the most horrible stuff to you. And then two hours later, the West coast feed, and contractually we had to interact with the tweets, yeah. the good, you go through, find the good ones and retweet and la ha ha ha. 
But in between the ha-ha-has was someone just going, that guy looks like Martin Luther King. <laughs> He's trash. So that galvanized me a great deal. You know, and I, I would also say that the city of Birmingham, you know, I know everybody believes that their hometown is the, the hardest place to make it, and, you know, but, you know, Birmingham really is a place where if you are not good, we are going to tell you because everyone thinks we're bad and dumb. So anything that comes out of this city needs to be pristine. If you are not pristine, please do not continue to try what you are doing because you're only going to embarrass the city and further solidify stereotypes. So you like get the, the pressure of all of blackness <laughs> put on you. You were right. Yeah, but that, that helped. It helped. You know, I went, the first time I think I went to Birmingham was to see Dr. James Andrews of Birmingham, Alabama, the famous orthopedic physician that all the athletes go to. We were doing a story for Countdown, pretending that Warren Moon had been born with butter patties on his hands. That's why he was the all-time <laughs> fumbles leader at the time. And we took a good <laughs> friend of mine, Aaron Owens, who happens to be black, we took his kid who's five made that be young Warren Moon's hand, right? <laughs> and then we went to Birmingham, met James Andrews, got his black assistant to stick his hand out to be Warren Moon's adult hand, and then he wiped the butter off. <laughs> and then we go back to Warren in California, and now he can throw a football and he might come back. Meanwhile, Dave Craig, who was second in fumbles at the time, never got the surgery. He can't even, like, hold a, a golf club. It's flying. <laughs> but I got free x-rays from Dr. James Andrews of Birmingham, Alabama's assistant. And he looked at my, I got a ruined ankle from football and he held, he held it up and he goes, Lordy, Lordy. And just handed it oh. back. Like, I can't do anything for you. I, um, I never met Dr. James Andrews. My mother had two knee replacements by Dr. Andrews, one by Andrews and one by Lee Max, Dr. Lee Max, yeah, who was yeah. Andrews' partner at the time. Right. Um, but I worked at the Health South Rehab Hospital. In the 90s, where everyone who came to get the sports surgery, our hospital was the hospital where you came to do your day or two of recovery. So, mm -hmm. Vladi Divac was in there. Dang. I remember Troy Aikman was on the floor at some point. And you weren't supposed to. I was, a, I was a food porter, so I just ran food. And guys like that, they're not eating the hospital sludge. They're getting some Ruth Chris. Sure. Okay, I, I don't know what a football, I don't know what a quarterback eats after surgery, but like that, that was probably the closest I came to being adjacent to anything. And then also one time Michael Jordan was just here. Y'all just missed him. He apparently went in a circuit city in Birmingham when he yeah. was playing baseball. Mm -hmm. He was just in circuit city, man. Oh, and it's, what's funny about it is I don't know what age you were, but when people don't believe that you saw us, like I was a Sonics fan. I grew up in South of Seattle. And one, mm -hmm. one time I'm waiting for the ride because one parent drops off, one parent figs up. And we saw Spencer Haywood get in his car and drive out. And we're like, oh my God, Spencer. So we're telling the other two kids, we swear, Spencer Haywood. We can't even, <laughs> can't believe we saw him. And they're like, no fucking way. Did you see Spencer? It's like, you think it stand back from it. He's, he's an adult. He has a house <laughs> and he has to get in the car and leave. He's not, you know, magically transported somewhere. <laughs> Did you watch Winning Time? You were talking about watching yes. other stand-up stuff. I love that show. I don't know where you, yeah, where you come I from. Enjoyed, I enjoyed the show. I know a lot of Lakers are mad. That's why I know a lot of it's true. 
because of it, it, the the fact that it is not a coincidence that Winning Time came out and then Magic Johnson had his four episode Last Dance esque yeah. uh, project that came out, and I believe there's a separate Lakers doc that either come out or right. about to come out. So it's like, no, no, no. Let me tell you my version. <laughs> It's like, okay, well, then there's probably a little merit to that. I just find it interesting with Winning Time that it's based on a book. Y'all told, y'all already told this to an author. So why aren't you mad at the book? Jeff Perlman. I yeah. see two baseballs, two baseballs over your left shoulder. Are those autographed? Uh -huh. special? Yes. One is an Anthony. Henry Aaron. Aaron. Give me Henry Aaron. No, close. Dang. Billy uh, Mays. You know, I'm a Cubs fan. So, you know, one is, oh, is Rizzo great. from the Cubs championship year. The other one is Ernie Banks. My father did a radio show with Ernie Banks when he ah, was in Chicago. Loved Ernie Banks. Yeah. What a sweet I, man. Yeah, he straight up would just do a game at Wrigley and then just go over to WVON and sit with my dad and they would just talk race and it like politics. Could you imagine yeah. an athlete today? Basically their version of the shop, <laughs> like LeBron. Yeah. <laughs> just two dudes talking like this isn't Aaron Rodgers on a Monday after the game breaking down the footage I think they rarely talked baseball Dang. you know so I'm in the process of getting access to the old WVON library um, to get to all of that stuff because that's something I definitely want to get you, my hands on and listen to oh wish there had been a camera for some of that did you you I'm sure saw a summer of soul yes yes shout out to Questlove um, that's a you're no kidding we Unbelievable because we've all heard about Woodstock. This goes back to a lot of stuff we were talking about earlier, like just the way this country's painted and the way it's things are disseminated. I never heard of that. I'm the biggest Stevie Wonder fan on earth. I had no idea this thing took place. He's out there playing drums to open the film. And, and it was this lost footage of this other huge event, a huge event. And mm -hmm. I'd never heard of it until that movie. Not once. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so. I, I definitely am obsessed with this finding a lot of that old footage of my dad, mm -hmm. Ernie, because I am curious of what they were talking about. And I would even argue that much of what they are talking about then still applies today. I, Indeed. The experiment I want to do, the experiment I want to do is go back and talk to some of my older brothers who have a lot of my dad's old reel to reels and stuff, the old, old tapes, and just play them today with no context. Oh, yeah. and just see if people realize that this is old or if this is, you know. Oh, I like that a lot. Like, I don't, I don't think people would be able to tell the difference depending on the issue that my dad, the only difference is that my father might refer to mass shootings as going postal because that's original. Remember that, remember the good old days. Remember when only the post office shot more than one person at a time. Like, <laughs> like it would be dated terms like that, but yeah. no, nah, it'd be, it'd be interesting. You mentioned a child very, very early on as we started talking. How old is your child? Uh, six. Six is the best. Three to six. No, you don't think so, but it's true. It's unbelievable because they're like real humans. They say insanely funny things. You can play indoor football yeah. with them. You, they like, they run to the door when you come home. Yeah. It changes and then it gets back to the good again. Because I got a daughter. I got four together. We, I got remarried to each other too. We have four. And as Bill Walton said, Kenny, you have four daughters. It's not where you've been. It's where you are.
because I had mentioned I had a stepdaughter and he was correcting me, right? So I loved it when Riley and Andy were like two, three, four, five. Oh man, those were the days. You have a look on your face. I don't believe that's true. When he turns 12, I'll circle back and go, you know what, man? You were right. I should have played more VR hits at. It is, it is love, but it is also fear, you know? And so I guess that's my own personal thing. That's not something I put off on him, but it's also, man, I got to get this right. Yeah. I got to make sure that, you know, the lights stay on. I got to make sure that this joke hits. I like, there is a level of stakes that has been added to my life once I had a child. And so that's a good thing with him. Yeah. I, oh, oh, I've gotten more done since my knowledge of, of when she called and told me she was pregnant. I've done more in seven years than I did the first 14 of 15 yeah. in my career. Total. I think we in the first five. I did more in the five years. My first five years in New York, th- that is the most productive five years I've had in my career. Three hour specials in that five year stretch. Credit to the res- newfound responsibility, the urgency to, of course, succeed. Yeah. Protect. Yeah. Um, yeah. it's definitely, it's definitely been great to keep me grounded as well. I'm more active too. I had to buy a bike because he has a bike and now we have to both ride yeah. bikes, you know, like that's just how bike riding goes. Like you have to. <laughs> you know, you just had to be here. We, we have partner. to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I heard earlier had said, I had said, wow, you had some nerve at 19 to do what you did to get up on stage. And you told the whole story about, well, you had to, because you're in some law trouble. And at the same time to get out on a stage and say, I'm going to do an hour or 90 or whatever it is. And the, and the measurement is it better be fucking funny. That's like, there's a whole bunch of other jobs you don't have to do. The one thing, right? Like you've announced, I'm doing this one thing and it's going to be good. And you, you have to believe you have nights where it's not working as well. Like, isn't there some anxiety to, to that whole trip? Yeah. But that never leaves you. You just yeah. you develop techniques to deal with it. I don't think fear. I think once you're not scared anymore, you probably should quit anyway, because you're not, you're not trying hard enough. And right. I think if you're always operating from a safe place, then, you know, you're not stretching yourself. And if you're not stretching yourself, you know, you're not vulnerable then evolve or die. Did you ever bomb on purpose as an experiment just to fuck with the crowd and whether you didn't like the crowd or. No, I, I know guys who do that and somehow they're able to get through the bomb and come out of it. Yeah. Even, you know, it's, it's kind of like the Bill Burr, Philadelphia incident Mm -hmm. that, you know, people can YouTube where he, he came out, they were booing everyone and he just attacked the audience to a point that they loved him at the end. Like, (laughs) I don't have that instinct. Like, that's not me. That's not my style. Um, but no, never deliberately, you know, I'm always trying to figure out, all right, what's the best, all right, this angle's not working. All right, what about sports? All right, that's not working. What about relationships? All right, you know, all right, what about food? You want to hear about food? Like it, it's, 
Hey, what about seven up? You also have seven up. Yeah, <laughs> I got that one in the back pocket. Um, I've never really, I don't know, man. I, I've never really tried to tank a show. I have properly bombed. Without intense. Of, yeah, with every, I walked on the stage with every intent of succeeding and did not. <laughs> and I had to stay on stage because I needed my money. Because if you come off stage and you don't do your time, contractually, they can dock your pay or keep your check, keep your whole check yeah. in some instances. Well, what was the show that, that you were then like, shit, I'm in with the big, like my dear friend, he passed away. I don't know if you know the name. You're a little younger than I, Warren Thomas. He came up with Dana Carvey and Chris Rock and Schneider, all those guys, they, you know, my age. And he played JC football with me and he was a great point guard. And, and, uh, he got to play at the Seattle comedy underground, um, Jim oh, Swanson. That's a legendary spot. Yeah. Jim Swanson just passed away. The guy that ran that joint, Swanee. He was a left-handed catcher in the Yankees organization. You can look it up. His son, Tanner, is the coach with the Yankees. Um, and so Warren, you know, we go to see him. There's, there's only like three years out of, out of college. And Warren is, you know, he's fucking floating around the West Coast doing big shows. He's opening for Dana Carvey. Like, that was big stuff. Was there a moment like that where you're like, I'm kind of in with the, the cool guys now? Uh, Ron White took me on the road with him and that was pretty snazzy. Um, you know, I don't know, like, cause I'd opened, I, I was spoiled in that I worked to come, my home club is the comedy club stardom in Birmingham, which sees LA and New York level talent every weekend. Mm -hmm. So if you were a relevant comic in the nineties, at some point I opened for you, especially if you were black. So. Jamie Foxx and D.L. Hughley and Steve Harvey and the Sinbads of the world to just be in the same space with them. Even if I'm just doing two or three minutes to open the show and then I'm not even on stage again the rest of the night, that was a gift. You know, I really appreciated that. Um, I would say, you know, doing Letterman in 2006 and then doing Def Comedy Jam less, less than a year later. And when I did Def Jam, I saw a lot of the people that I had been opening for up until that point in my career. At this point, this is year nine. And it was cool to have some level, like D.L. Hughley came up and spoke to me as if he already knew me, as if I was, I'm not gonna say a peer, but hey, bro, I recognize that you are yeah. here, you have arrived, you are a member of this fraternity now. And I was treated as such. And I would say That's a big deal. those two instances were probably some degree of graduation because television tapings, especially something like Def Comedy Jam, where they do four or five episodes a day, there's also, it's like a comedy family reunion. So there's a bunch of comedians taping and then a bunch of comedians hanging out to hang out with the comedians that are taping. So the energy between you and other comedians, even if a guy didn't know you, but is aware of your work, those moments, I got a lot of validation from a lot of different, you know, a lot of OGs in the game. So, you know, I would say that. And then Ron White, Ron White, though, also in the same night, <laughs> Ron White also in the same night, like also validated just how little I understood about how far I had to go. Mm -hmm. I'm opening for Ron in Huntsville and I've driven up from Birmingham. You know, I don't have a hotel, but I'm trying to be like polite as an opener and you know, I, you know, and so backstage after the show, I go, well, uh, 
when are you leaving, Ron? You know, I'd, I'd, it'd be an honor to drive you to the airport. He goes, Roy, I'm leaving tonight. And it's like a Thursday night in Huntsville. I'm like, you're not, I don't understand. What, what airline leaves Huntsville this late at night? Is it Southwest? Is it, you know, Roy, I have a plane. <laughs> <laughs> and then he points to a guy across the room. That's my pilot over there. And I was like, oh, shit. there's another level. There's another level. I've been, I've, I've been opening for comedians, but this is, oh, this is that blue collar tour money. Okay. I see what's happening now. Like that, like, wow, I'm opening for Ron White. I've arrived. He's such a nice man. Maybe he wants a ride. Maybe he wants me to drop him off at the American Airlines terminal. Roy, I have a private jet. My pilot hangs with me like my homeboy. Take your money. Thank you. See you tomorrow in Mobile, Roy. <laughs> so it was education and maybe inspiration. Although you don't seem entirely driven by money, you seem... Like you're here for the jokes. Not that money's terrible, but yeah. do I have you wrong? You seem no, really no. sincere about the craft of it. You have to be because otherwise that's going to come out on stage. And at some point it, you're going to get exposed. You know, you're going, you're going to get exposed for not, for not caring enough. You can chase the money and get the money, but that money's not going to be forever. You know, when I look at careers of the great comedians, the comedians that people truly respect, they all died with dates on the books. And I think that's really a testament to just how hard they worked. And through that, you get longevity. You don't get longevity from mailing it in. It's impossible because if people are going to grow with you, that means that at some point in your career, you had to evolve and lazy people don't evolve those philosophical words from Roy. We're going to conclude our show. Good luck on your 23 different projects going at once. <laughs> and you were uh, uh, great to meet. I'm really glad I met and you were fantastic. Thank you for your time. Hey, thank you, brother. Hey, Maine is a production of me, Kenny Maine and Odyssey. Our senior producer is Paul Aspen. Our executive producer is Jody Avergan. And our executive producer for Odyssey is Lena Glazer. Social media support by Joey Capone. If you like our show, please rate us, leave a review, and don't forget to subscribe.